Well, greetings, students, and uh, thank you for your. Just want to thank you for your prayers and your support uh, after my injury of rupturing my Achilles, and although I'm we're not there in person, we'll continue this wonderful series through the Book of Ephesians from right here in my home, and it is hoped that in the start of May, when we start the next semester to go over chapters four through six, then. At that point, I will be there in person again to recommence the second part. So please continue to pray for a speedy recovery for my leg. And uh, it's been a certainly a work of patience in my loving dear wife. And uh, of whom I am very appreciative of the work uh, and the support she's been giving me. Uh, and all for you, for your lovely kind words and uh, prayers and thoughts. Thank you so much. So we begin here. As we move on, we're going to open with just a word of prayer. And I'm reminded again of that. We spoke about this earlier a few weeks ago, that opening doxology that we hear uh, where it says our, our worship and our attention is drawn to God, where it says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And Father, we do come to you today and we come to you at this time in the, our next lesson. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you teach us all things and you reveal to us uh, the, the beauty of this passage. And that as we dig deeper into this study of Ephesians, that you continue to open up our hearts to and our eyes and our understanding and let us be enlightened by your word. And let us go and do your word and be empowered to not just be hearers, but be doers also. So we bring all of this before you, Father, in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen. So yes, just like that doxology says, praise Father, Son and Holy Ghost. We come to the part here where, as we're reminded in chapter 3, where we see Paul beginning to express himself personally, more in a more personal way, to those in the church in Ephesus. And also we see this chapter, as chapter one was, we saw God at work. Chapter two, we see the message of Christ at work. And in chapter three, we see the message of the of the Holy Spirit at work, completing that of the Trinity. When we come back in the next semester, we will begin to look at the conduct of the church. So this is the, the part where we've been looking at the, the believers' rights and inheritance and the believer's walk with God, his spiritual walk, and then we come to looking at how the believer through the church begins to live that out um, as believers, of which I'm very excited about getting into all that, as I'm sure you are. So we start, and we're going to do a quick summation. Paul, in this chapter, if we look at chapter 3, and we'll go through verses 1 to 13, just skimming through, and then we'll come back and cover where we left off in verse 8 the last time. So it's all in chapter 3, verse 1 to 13 says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And here we see Paul just generally speaking about his calling by Christ, eh, by the Lord and his his testimony of being saved and 
um, and how he has been called by God to be a messenger for God and to be an administer of the word of God to the church of God. And so he's come now, he's been given the authority by God to come now and speak of the mystery that was made known to me, he says, by revelation as he had written previously. And he said, or earlier on in this letter he'd written that, and he may have made mention to things on his previous visits with, with the Ephesians. And it says, when you read this, verse 4, can you perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So again, he's now bringing across the message that the Lord has given him where he's revealing to them the mystery that was indeed hidden from all previous generations. And this mystery was between the Jews and the Gentiles that they were now no longer separated but under and in through and in through Christ, they have become one in Christ Jesus. And of this gospel in verse 7, he said, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul obviously and clearly, as all we should, gives the credit of his salvation and his calling to the work of grace that God did in his life. And that God has empowered him to do this role. And he says in verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So we see those beautiful riches in Christ, the spiritual blessings in Christ, the inheritance we have in Christ. Paul brings this message and he mentions, of course, that he saw himself as the very least. He was the persecutor of the church, the one who severely beat upon and punished the church but has now come and been faced with grace and now wears grace and is now called and redeemed by grace and now speaks and obeys by grace. So we now move our attention here and the closing part of this uh, section in this chapter, when it, verses 9 to 13, he says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have a boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So we come to verse 9 and it says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. If we remember back to our previous lesson where Paul spoke of the mystery now revealed, Paul now emphasises here that his own calling was to bring this message now revealed to bring light to those who either had no idea or did not understand this mystery. To bring light to something is to normally bring understanding. However, in this case, it refers more to a complete revelation of something previously hidden 
and kept secret. It was hidden, this mystery, in the depths of God. God, through his son Jesus, death and resurrection, has now revealed this by his spirit unto Paul. And he's using Paul as his mouthpiece. What was hidden by God in the depths of God, now because of grace, because of the sending of his son, because of Christ's work upon the earth and his death and his resurrection, now saving Paul, he now uses man as the instrument to reveal the mysteries of God. Now we're going to see that a little later on again uh, in, in this chapter, uh, in the next verse. But isn't that incredible that God would use the vehicle of man to reveal the mysteries of God that have been hidden for generations? So that those of whom God has given ears to hear and hearts to receive would now upon hearing this mystery understand what the eternal plan of God was all along. And that was to bring unity between that which was divided by law and bring union between both parties of Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, and bring them into perfect unity. His perfect plan all along, his eternal plan, as we saw within Christ, the one that was to unite all things unto himself, to unite all people unto himself, all of those whom God has called before the foundations of the world and unite them all together. And all of creation. We saw formerly in our previous lessons about how all creation is groaning, awaiting. And Christ is going to bring all of that together as the administer of God's eternal plan. He then speaks of the ages to come again. So he's saying, and to bring light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden? And he says, for ages in God. These ages to come in the eternal plan of God is to bring all things together, redeemed, restored, renewed through his son Jesus. Whether it be thrones or dominions, Every created thing will be brought back into the perfect order and presented before the Father, holy and blameless. Everything brought back in the order, holy and blameless. You know, you and I who were afar off, you and I who did not know God, will be presented before God, holy and blameless. Why? Because it was in God's will to do so. Because he loves you and I. What a beautiful thought. Holy and blessed. Say that to yourself often, you know. The Lord has redeemed me from the curse of sin and death and renews me and will present me as holy and blameless. What a beautiful picture. This goes beyond preaching and teaching here for the apostle is bringing an explanation to enable the Ephesians to understand the mystery and the wealth of blessing of their inheritance in Christ Jesus. And that this wealth and blessings are not for the Jew only, but they're for all the Jews and the Gentiles together and now seen as Christians. 
You see, the focus was on rituals, but now it must and always be about union with Christ and union with one another. That union is full of the very richness of the spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus. We do not seek earthly riches, as some false teachers would have us think. And some would, these teachers would have us think that it's never what God desires for us. You know, um, in that sense, it's like I, I used to go to a church years ago and it was, it was, you know, it was tainted heavily in the prosperity message of God wants you to have wealth. God wants you to have this. God wants you to have that. And it was always things that were mentioned. It was always something physical that was mentioned that God wanted us to have. And instead we see the truth of the gospel is it's always something spiritual that God wants us to have. That's the difference. A false teacher will preach and tell you to gather together everything physical. But as we see, a true teacher will tell us to gather together all things spiritual for God's glory. He desires that we seek those spiritual blessings and we seek his face, not his hand, and which are greater blessing and importance to our lives here and for the life to come. We know that we cannot take riches when we go to heaven. They will be eaten up and left here behind on earth. But we are to, we are to work and store up spiritual riches because we have riches, spiritual riches here on earth and we will have spiritual riches in heaven. We will have the depths here on earth and we will carry that forward into heaven for the fullness of these things. Every moment you spend here seeking wealth and the riches of the world is another moment you're walking out of the spiritual blessings that are laid out for you on the cross at Calvary. So now we move on to verse 10. And he says, and it's all these things in the, hidden in the ages of God who created all things, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, what I find fascinating here is that God has used the vehicle of the church to reveal things to the spiritual realm. Imagine the picture. The rulers of evil have plagued humanity for generations, causing animosity and division among all peoples. Christ comes, destroys their work, defeating death on the cross and rendering Satan powerless. He says in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He delivers, he's defeated death, he's redeemed. In doing so, he not only destroyed death, but he removed that animosity and unified all believers, both Jew and Gentile. These powers and even those spiritual angelic beings have now seen unfold before them the manifold wisdom of God. They also 
like the Jews from previous generations, had no idea of this hidden mystery that was hiding in the depths of God. It's not that the church now preaches either to those spiritual powers and authorities. Of course not. It is by the grace of God empowering us to continue in the faith in unity that displays his manifold wisdom. The working of unity that all believers come together now without division and preach the gospel is the manifold wisdom that God has put in place. This word manifold in the Greek means variegated. And I find that a very interesting phrase if we think about it. It means, and and it speaks of it being of, like uh, the the word manifold being of various colours, various and forums and uh, I know that you know I love uh, gardening I love plants I love flowers and and every year uh, you know my wife and I we love to sit out in our back in our decking room we've got pots with various various different colours and flowers and I love certain plants I like a plant but I love how it has such varied colours and leaves and flowers and different things that come from it and you can buy the same plant in many different colours and shapes but God's wisdom is manifold it is of various shapes various forms it comes and presents itself it reveals itself in various ways to us it represents a variety of colours in that his wisdom is not only revealed in various ways but is of magnificent, joyful variance. It is through the those great variety of ways that the Supreme Being, God, achieved the salvation of so many. The wisdom of God is also known as the vastness of his knowledge. And just like God in his wisdom chooses the vehicle of the preaching of the gospel to deliver the mystery of gospel, which is man, he uses us mysteriously, although his power to save us is completely a work of him. He uses, for some reason, man to present that gospel so that in the doing so, there is the mystery of using man to present that gospel that in turns open the ears of those whom the Spirit is working upon and that union between man, the gospel, and the work of the Holy Spirit draws people to salvation. Incredible. And just like that, in God's wisdom, so it is here that in his wisdom, he has used the church to reveal the mystery of the union between both Jew and Gentile. Um, within your notes, I have put together a, a sheet for you on the wisdom of God and and his attributes is such a powerful attribute. It's it's described in the Bible as perfect. It's described as mighty. It's described as universal. It's described as infinite, unsearchable. It's described as wonderful. His wisdom is beyond human comprehension. It's incomparable. His wisdom contains treasures. His wisdom is in, is given to the saints. The saints ascribe. All praise, glory, honour and wisdom be to our God. It's exhibited in his works. It's exhibited in his counsel. It's exhibited in his foreshadowing of events. It's exhibited in the redemption. 
It's exhibited as it searches the heart of man and it's in the depths of God. It's in the way of the saints, the want of the saints, the affliction of the saints, the infirmities of saints. It's in the minutest of matters. It's in the most secret things. It's in the time of judgment to come. His wisdom is even seen and how he handles the wicked and their works. And in God's wisdom, nothing is concealed from him. The wicked question his wisdom, but we know that he is magnified in his wisdom. We move on now to verse 11, and it says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of this manifold wisdom was not some quickly thought up idea, but it was exactly, exactly according to his eternal plan. It was a before the foundations of the earth, whatever form type of plan. A plan that would go beyond the ages and continue for all eternity. It was indeed a plan to display his manifold wisdom. And it was to see that plan come to completion in Christ in his death and his resurrection. And that plan would then be administered by Christ for all eternity. Therefore, as we see here, it was the plan of God to use the church as the instrument in which to reveal his plan to angelic leaders and rulers and powers of spiritual wickedness. You see, all of God's plan is completed, of course, in Christ. His title, Christ Jesus, in this verse, revealing his lordship. Acts 2, 36, 8, 16, 10, 36, 11, 17 and 19, 5. We see him in his lordship, Christ the Lord. And in Romans 10, 9 and 14, 9 and 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And it says it reveals his name, Jesus. It reveals his title, Christ, which is more than a name. For it reveals him as the promised Messiah who would bring salvation to both the Jew and the Gentile. And finally, it reveals his personal relationship to believers. He is our Lord. He is our Lord. And it was according, this plan revealed, to the, his, God's eternal purpose, realised in Christ. And in verse 12 we come to, in whom we have a boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, what a beautiful thought. I love this verse. It says, you know, and now because of what Christ has done for us, we have this boldness. According to the, the eternal plan of God, we have access to the plan, access to the Father, and access to the Holy of Holies. And not only that, but we can also walk with confidence and boldness. We don't have to walk as timid little Christians with some weak faith. For Ephesians 6.10 reminds us, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When we try to do things in our own strength, there is no strength. When we try to do things of our own power, there is no power. It's weak, it's feeble. But he reminds us here in Ephesians 6 to say, Be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his 
might, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms of God. The boldness and access which we have now been given in Christ means to loosen the restraints. Or should we say the removal of those restraints? We can now speak with the Father confidently, reverently and freely. We can make our approach to God in prayer. This is, however, not an arrogant boldness. that It's a familiarity without contempt. We never come before God arrogantly as if we're something. We come before him with confidence, but reverently. We are then taught here that the source of our newfound boldness and confidence, and that it, it is first and foremost in and through Christ himself who's given us access to our salvation and a new relationship with God. But this is activated by the faith that he's given us to believe in God. Calvin, John Calvin, the great theologian and expositor, puts it like this. He says, faith produces confidence, which again in its turn produces boldness. There are three stages, he goes on to say, in our progress. First, we believe the promises of God. Next, by relying on them, we obtain that confidence, which is accompanied by holiness and peace of mind. And last of all comes boldness, which enables us to banish fear and to come with firmness and steadiness into the very presence of God. So we have here these spiritual blessings which are in Christ Jesus. Believe them, lean on them, walk in them and let them be partnered with a life that walks in those blessings in all holiness. Giving us peace within our hearts and minds. This builds up our confidence in knowing that all of his promises are true. And from a place of faith and confidence comes that boldness to walk far out from the grasps of fear. Where the believer will walk in a sure footing right into the presence of Almighty God. You see the works of unbelief are trembling, doubting and hesitation. Yet the works of faith are steadiness, surety, firmness and confidence. So let me repeat that. The works of unbelief is when we tremble, when doubting and hesitation. But the work of faith is steadiness, surety, firmness and confidence. I don't know if you've ever seen two. I've, I, I sometimes used to watch, uh, I watched it for a very, very long time, but I used to watch some boxing matches, they had, it was called UFC fighting or something, and, and in the face-off before it, they would do these weigh-ins, and it had to be a particular weight to fight in that class of fighter, and they would stand at, at that point as a photo opportunity with all the fans cheering and jeering, and they would stand with the, the, the car for the cameras side by side, and then they do this face-off before... Uh, the next day's fight and they stand and face each other and, and they kind of stand and every now and then one of them jerks forward and normally a surely steady confident fighter just does not flinch when the other jerks forward at him however every now and then you see someone who jerks back a bit and it causes 
tension and contention between them. That jerking back is like the work of unbelief. The believers, the person's got slight, slight fear. He's got a slight tremble, a doubt, a hesitation. But the work of the steady man would not flinch when faced with trials. The work of faith is steadiness, surety, stands firm and stands with confidence in Christ. So don't flinch when the enemy comes calling. We must not tremble, we must not fear, we must not doubt for it is our God who supplies all of our needs according to his, get this, not his material wealth, but his riches in glory. Riches in glory. So we conclude this section, this section of chapter 3, in verse 13, and it says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul beautifully finishes this passage, encouraging them not to grow weary in the faith, not to lose heart, but to be confident. He's saying, even in my imprisonment, I'm reminding you not to lose heart. So let's take a moment here just to ponder the situation here. Paul, the loving apostle, so caring, so full of godliness, is sitting in a Roman prison cell in chains. He's sitting suffering, yet he takes it upon himself to write lovingly of the gospel to the church at Ephesus. His suffering thought to reach out to those who were not suffering. That's like people right now sitting in a, in, in a, you know, I think of right now the, the war that's going on between Ukraine and Russia and that's like people who I know they are sitting in Ukraine right now suffering bombardment of missiles praying for the church in Scotland. And they're suffering, they're praying for us. You know, it's incredible. We don't know Sometimes we suffer physical things and whatever and the persecution of that, I've never known a persecution like these guys going through war or like persecution of being enslaved and and bound for our faith that we could no longer speak but yet still speaking prayers and writing to encourage the church. Lord, may there be peace in the earth, Lord. The glory here he mentions of in this passage I ask you not to lose heart, he says, over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And he's speaking to the church and he's mentioning here, it's not that of the glory of Christ, but it should be translated as to your credit. He's speaking of a credit to continue in the faith. It's to their credit. Don't give up, he's saying. I know I am in chains. Don't lose heart. Because what has been revealed to you now should be celebrated and rejoice, therefore, as one group of Christians. That's what he's bringing here to them. Father, we thank you for this word today, Lord, and I pray that it would challenge us and speak to us this week as we continue this study. Would you let us review the notes and let us hear from you, Holy Spirit, as you speak and continue to work in us your word. In the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.